and then I looked a little bit deeper into malaria and what really struck me was that the thing that really struck me first of all was that the equivalent of seven jumbo jets full of children under five were dying from malaria every day. You know, I, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that's slaughter. G'day folks and welcome back to Giving What We Can, where we explore how to use our resources to do the most good. Today I'm joined by Rob Mather from the Against Malaria Foundation, where he's the CEO and founder of the organisation. But before we jump in, I'm actually joined by my colleague Grace, uh, who we're going to talk a little bit about what struck us for the episode, just to prime you for it. So Grace, uh, what are some of the things that really struck you in this interview with Rob? Well, one of the things that struck me is just how engaging Rob is to listen to um, and also just the story of how he came to found the organisation. I think it's it's an incredible story that takes you from, you know, like this very personal um, kind of cause through to this really big global cause that is uh, trying to prevent malaria. Another thing that I just loved was the stories of how he was solving problems. So like his 20 minute exercise where he thinks about what could he do with 20 minutes that could just be incredibly high leverage. The way he managed to get so many things uh, completely free from people and organisations who he was able to bring on board with the mission of what they were working on. It's amazing how many people he just called up and managed to convince to get on board. I think um, he's kind of like the ultimate salesman for good. Um, And uh, yeah, it's such an impressive skill and I think it's I mean it's translated into such incredible impact as well and we talk about the problem of malaria the thing that really emotionally hit me was uh, the image that he painted of seven jumbo jets colliding on a runway each day to represent the number of children under five dying from malaria every day and it's just sometimes really hard to keep in mind just that immense scale the other thing that was quite delightful was actually hearing how the story started so far away from where it ended. So I won't spoil it for the listeners, but yeah, the, the way that he started uh, just, you know, from being on the couch with a you know, television remote, change the channel, and this series of events led from something that was quite local to him to, you know, something that was very, very international. Well, without further ado, uh, here's Rob. Uh, Rob, welcome, and th- thank you so much for joining Pleasure. Thanks, Luke. Um, I'd love it if you could just uh, start by giving a quick overview on what it is that AMF does. Sure. So we receive funds, um, we buy long-lasting insecticidal nets, and we work with partners in countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, to distribute them to make sure people in malarious areas are are protected when they sleep at night from the bites of... Uh, malaria-carrying mosquitoes that would otherwise cause severe illness or worse. I'd love to hear a bit about AMS backstory, so how it came into existence. Um, There's quite a story there, and I really enjoy hearing it from you. Well, you're very kind. Um, Well, I suppose I'm not very good with a remote control of a television. Um, That's really how uh, my uh, time and how I spend it changed back in 2003. So quite a few years ago now, I was watching the BBC News here in the UK and I was looking to turn off the television and managed instead to change channels. And that turns out to have been a pretty pivotal moment because what I then saw on the television screen was the image of a a small girl, a five-year-old girl, who had been very, very badly burned in a house fire. In fact, she'd lost 90% of the skin on her body. Um... The only skin that was left on her body when she was burned age two was the bit beneath her wet nappy because it was wet. And so a terrible um, accident um, that left um, 
uh, a little girl called Terry in a very bad way. And one of our television channels over here um, ran a documentary for an hour that followed the next three years of her life. And she had 16 or 17 operations over the next three years. And it was an exceptionally moving story, an exceptionally moving piece of television. I'm not ashamed to say that I was sort of streaming for an hour watching it. Um, my wife and I had two young children at the time. Um, so perhaps there was an even more resonance there. But, um, you know, it was, you know, it was quite a story to, um, to see. And I uh, called a couple of friends of mine after the program and said, would you swim a distance equivalent to the English Channel in a swimming pool with me, because I'm not brave enough or fit enough to do the real thing, and let's raise some money for a little girl called Terry who, um, who needs help. And my two friends said yes straight away. And that was back in June 2003. And our plan was to swim 22 miles, the, the distance of the, uh, the channels between England and France, um, in December, so in six months' time. And it all then took off in a rather bizarre way um, when I look back in that within seven weeks, we had 70 countries involved. We had 150 swims with people in uh, very far-flung places. So we had people swimming in, in, um, in Beijing, in La Paz, Bolivia, in Vanuatu, in Fiji, in California, in Adelaide. Um, in Turkmenistan, I mean, just, it was bizarre how people responded to a few emails I sent and said, yep, we'll get involved. We'd like to do a swim and be involved in what became known as Swim for Terry. And the, the, the reason it all started was that I was speaking to my brother-in-law quite by accident and, and we were talking about swimming for a uh, again, a slightly bizarre reason. And and I said, ah, Peter, would you do a swim in Sydney? Would you swim the English Channel in a swimming pool um, off Bondi Beach or in the Iceberg Swimming Pool um, in Sydney for a little girl who suffered 90% burns in a house fire? And he said, well, of course I would. Um, you know, when are we doing it? And I then decided that with a swim in London with my two friends and a swim in Sydney, in a sense sort of the antipodal points, not quite, but I thought, I wonder if I could make half a dozen calls and see if we could get half, half a dozen other people involved in something. And we could say, I think my phrase to my wife was, you know, we can say we're ringing the, the world with swims for this child because it doesn't matter where you are. You know, a, a two-year-old, three, four, five-year-old that's been affected in this way, that's worth, you know, that's worth, you know, helping out. And so my first act, if you like, was to type in swimming New York into a famous search engine, and up mm -hmm. came a name. And more interesting for me was a number. I just wanted a number. I just wanted to call somebody and speak to somebody because I often think that's the best way of, of asking for assistance or taking the next step. And I found a lovely man called Steve Nelson. I'd never spoken to him before. Um, and he happened to be part of a master's swimming club, so I thought, you know, he's going to know something about swimming. And I called him up and said, Hello, Steve, my name's Rob Mather. We've never spoken before. Daftest question you're going to get all week, but who the flipping heck do I talk to in your city who'd be willing to round up a group of people and on this day swim this distance for this girl who suffered 90% burns in a house fire? And his response was the same response I had when I called people in, called a nice man called Brian Stack in, uh, in California. I called somebody in Beijing. I called somebody in, uh, where else? Abu Dhabi, Rome, Paris. There were eight locations in total. Singapore, I think, was in there as well. 
And this was people I'd never spoken to in my life before. I just found somebody who I thought might be connected with swimming. And the response that Steve gave me when I asked, who do I find in your city? He said, me. And I said, would you? And he said, of course I would. How can I not, how can I not do something for a child who suffered 90% burns and house fire? So within about 35 minutes of telephone calls spread over 36 hours, we had eight swims involved uh, around the world or being planned, if you like. And, and there were no requirements. I said, look, it might be just you. It might be you and a few friends. If it's your swimming club, then that's terrific. Um, and, you know, the idea is to raise some money. Um, and I added that the two things you should be aware of is that please don't send me any money. Um, this girl, Terry's trust fund does exist. Um, please go and find the details or I'll send you the details. Um, and the money goes directly to them and you can check them out. I mean, they are, you know, they're for real. Um, you know, you can independently verify they exist. Um, and I suppose I also said, you know, this is genuine because which idiot would, you know, phone you up and ask you to do something like this. Um, it is verifiable. You can look up Terry's story and find out about her. And so eight swims, if you like, were within 36 hours were on the cards. And as I mentioned, over a period of weeks, it developed into many, many swims, 150 swims, 75 countries, 10,000 people. And we raised a lot of money for Terry. And 100% of it went to her trust fund. And that last bit, and indeed all of this, was seminal, if you like, was, was very um, influential on what I then um, came around to when I focused on malaria. So a lot of this swim for Terry was incredibly formative. Um, I didn't want any of the money that any of us gave to go to anything other than Terry's trust fund. So when I phoned the television company and said, would you be willing to send me some copies of the program because we're going to raise some money for Terry and it would be really helpful if the people involved could see the program. And a lot of these people are in very different parts of the world. It's not going to be broadcast elsewhere, but just I'd like to send a, a videotape as it was in back in those days or even a DVD. And so ITV very kindly sent me the beta tape, which is a, you know, a big, a big oversized uh, tape. And that arrived at my home. And I then thought, right, well, I, what do I do with this? Um, so found somebody again, you know, quick search, video duplication London was what I typed into a, an internet search and a nice man called Phil answered the phone. Um, I did call the company at six o'clock at night because I thought the more senior people are liable to be around then. So if I want to ask for something you know, pro bono, if you like, I'm more likely to have a better chance if I'm speaking to somebody who could make that decision. And this nice chap called Phil uh, Stringer picked up the phone. And I said, daft this question, you're going to get a week, Phil. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. This is the help I'm looking for. Who do I talk to in your industry? And you won't be surprised to hear that his answer was me. So I sent him the beta tape. Um, he produced hundreds of copies uh, and then another colleague um, in, a, in another part of the industry, if you like, of his produced hundreds of copies of DVDs. So we sent the videotapes and the DVDs um, to various people all over the world and said, please, you know, look at Terry's stories, you know, you know, not so much what, but who you're swimming for. And so people were very engaged. I mean, it wasn't something that was distant, even though the person they were swimming and going to be helping was distant it was a very personal real engaged you know story and i think that was very important this connection that people know what they're doing something for <clears throat> uh, we put a little website together and we put dots on maps so that people involved could see 
who else was involved around the world. Um, I like the idea of connecting everybody. And so we could all see that, you know, whilst we might live in one city, there were people in many other cities spread across the planet who are all doing something together on the same day. I think that has a really nice resonance of we're all helping. One of the people involved in Australia was a lovely man called Walter Cole, whose family had association with swimming. Um, his father had set up, I believe, the Cole Classic, which is a very famous open water swim off Bondi Beach. Yeah. And Walter said, what are we doing next year? And I said, well, it's only July. We haven't done the swim for Terry, which is in December yet. But I don't know, maybe, maybe we'll get a million people swimming next year. And he said, terrific. That means we only need 999,998 more people because I'm in. <laughs> and clearly he was expressing his desire, his support, his interest. Um, and it set something off in my brain, which I logged away, which is I wonder if we could get a very large number of people to do something one day for something important. Uh, anyway, Symphotery took place. We raised a lot of money. Um, I learned a lot from it. Um, most of all, how brilliant people are, um, how people want to help, um, how generous they are with their time. There were numerous people who helped along the way. Um, so when I was sending out the aforementioned videos and DVDs all over the world, um, I do know how much it cost, or I remember how much it cost to send a DVD to Nepal, um, which is a long way away, um, because we had a, a group swimming in Nepal for a little girl who lived 40 miles north of London who'd suffered very badly in a house fire. And, you know, the sort of humanity and spirit of that was, <clears throat> was terrific. Um, and I remember saying to Phil, the man you'll remember who was uh, really helpful in producing copies of the, uh, the beta tape that the television company had sent me, I remember saying to him, I need to, I need to find a postage ferry here. Um, because this is actually costing me quite a lot of money personally, you know, sort of into the thousands of pounds at this point, of uh, which I was very happy to pay for, uh, because I didn't want it to come out of any money that people raised. So there was an important principle there of retaining that sort of simplicity and purity of, you know, if you raise money for Terry, all of it goes for Terry. Nothing comes off the top. Really important principle for me. Um, and I think Phil went on holiday, you know, a couple of weeks later with somebody I'd never met. And he sent me a short email when he came back, postage, fairy, found. And he had spoken to his mate, um, a man called Andy, when he'd been on holiday. And he subsequently became with me the first, we were the first two trustees of uh, World Swim Against Malaria Foundation Limited, I think was the name of the charity when we first set it up. So this chap, Andy, appeared and said, listen, I want to support this. What a, you know, this sounds like a really good thing to do. And he sent me a check for £5,000 more than I needed, totally unsolicited, never met the guy. So again, another element here of people I'd never come across wanting to help. And, you know, I hadn't sat in a room and put together a business plan and persuaded them of something. You know, I hadn't even met them, hadn't even spoken to them. And so I was learning all the time through this experience um, when it came to the, the sort of charity fundraising thing, something I'd never really done before. And I was I was learning um, and reflecting on, you know, the experiences I was having, if you like. So, Symphotery finished, and Walter's comment to me, and some other thoughts, you know, other comments other people had made, but particularly Walter's comment sort of, you know, stuck there, just because the simplicity with which he sort of expressed support and enthusiasm. And having travelled in Africa and Asia and you know, parts of the world when I was younger, you know, backpacking, uh, you know, I'd, I'd seen a lot of, you know, disease and illness. And I'm, you know, I suppose relatively tuned into 
the things that afflict very, very badly and are in a very fundamental way, you know, parts of our planet. And I suppose there was a, a very simple choice initially, which was not for a developed world disease, not for heart disease or cancer, because I think, relatively speaking, they get a lot of support. But there are many areas of the world that are relatively neglected, where a relatively small amount of money goes a long way. So the list that I came up with, I think, was HIV, AIDS, TB, malaria, landmines, freshwater, diarrhea. You know, areas where, you know, the detention, you know, back in 2005, you know, there was relatively, again, I'm using the word relatively quite a lot here, relatively little attention paid to some of these things. And I went through each of those, and HIV-AIDS, it's also a first-world, um, developed-world problem. So again, was getting more money than in other areas. Um, TB, scratched beneath the surface of that, did a bit of research. You know, quite a difficult one to work out exactly what the right intervention would be, or in a way that, with my sort of trying to sort of put myself in the position of the public, and what would the public want to support, and I thought that was was quite could be quite complicated. Fresh water, massive problem, difficult. Landmines, political. Um, and then I looked a little bit deeper into malaria. And what really struck me was that the thing that really struck me, first of all, was that the equivalent of seven jumbo jets full of children under five were dying from malaria every day. Yeah. And if we walked down to the end of a runway and we saw you know, a horrific, you know, image to put into your head, but two 747s collide on the runway and, you know, big fireball. And then we saw that another three in a bit times. And then I said, same time tomorrow, same time the next day, same time the next day. You know, I, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that's slaughter. I mean, it's, it's, and that's just the under fives. And in looking at the main mechanisms of preventing and treating malaria quite quickly that what we're looking at is a humble bed net that in those days cost five dollars and if you put that over a head and a bed um, then because mosquitoes typically malaria kang mosquitoes typically bite between 10 o'clock at night and two o'clock in the morning you you do a huge amount to stop the transmission of malaria. In fact, it is the most significant, it's the most effective way of preventing malaria. Um, and even when these nets have holes and rips and tears in them, which inevitably ha happens in some of the environments, many of the environments in which these nets are distributed, we're not talking about houses with brick walls, we're talking about households. Um, uh, because the mosquito doesn't do an aerobatics maneuver through a hole, it lands on the net and migrates to the hole, it picks up the insecticide, by its feet, and that causes knockdown, literally knocks the mosquito down and, and kills it. So incredibly effective mechanism. And I did a bit more research, and I found that the number of nets that were being distributed was in the low millions, and the number of people that were affected was in the high hundreds of millions. And so I thought, ah, gap. <laughs> um, <laughs> not enough going on here, you know. And, um, and then you run some numbers, and you realize that, you know, this is, you know, it's not expensive to do this work. And I did feel that if I were to... Uh, embark upon a process of trying to get a lot of people to swim if the ask if you like or the or the invitation to the public was if we swim and raise money and we can put a hundred percent of it very important to me right from the start into buying nets 
So 100% of the money you give us with your donation will buy nets. We can go a long way to protect, you know, a few thousand dollars protects an entire village. So that was the sort of thinking behind the movement from, you know, the adventure we have with Symphoteri to could we do a world swim against malaria or world swim for malaria, I think we called it initially. Um, so that was the, that got me to thinking about the starting line because, of course, now the work starts. How do you get a million people to swim? So, um, you know, I can, I can go <laughs> on and tell you about that if you like. It'd be great. Uh, yeah, uh, t tell us about how, how you get a million people swimming. Um, so the challenge I was faced with uh, that I'd, I'd presented to myself was, uh, to, you know, how do I get a million people to swim? And I often have a 20-minute approach um, to getting things done, uh, by which I mean I set myself the constraint of once I'm going to start to do something and try and achieve something, I've only got 20 minutes to do it. So the clock starts ticking, the stopwatch goes. I can do as much research as I like I, and so on. Um, but then once I sort of, you know, get on with it, then I've got 20 minutes. And obviously there's a, <clears throat> a certain amount of poetic license that needs to be given here because it's really trying to help me orient towards those actions, those conversations that are key, that are going to get to the end point, either, you know, the scale of something. So for example, if I was trying to get a million people to swim and I spent, you know, a few hours um, talking to and explaining what I was trying to do to a local school, well, A, I've blown my 20 minutes, but also to get to that might involve a hundred, um, you know, 200 people swimming if the entire school was involved, let's say, uh, and that's not scalable. Um, and that would take a long time to get to a, a million people swimming. So my thinking was around, I wonder if I could identify 20 organizations that I could call, spend a minute on the phone with each, and have them agree to give me, it's the wrong phrase, but to come up with 5,000 people swimming. So I took a blank sheet of paper and I wrote down organizations <laughs> that I thought might be candidates for you know, being able to do that. And the first name on the list was the British Army. The next name was Aussie Masters Swimming, then USA Triathlon, the New Zealand Secondary Schools Sports Council, wonderful group, um, who had been involved in Swim for Terry. So I'd made some contacts through Swim for Terry, and it had helped me with some thinking. Modern Pentathlon. A whole series of groups um, included on those groups eventually was the BBC, Microsoft, um, organizations that per se didn't have any uh, connection with swimming but might have the right number of people and maybe might have an approach that would say, look, we like the idea of that. Given we're big enough, we might be able to get involved. And so always in these circumstances of getting something done, I found, is the first call is you know, the, putting the first building block of those 20, if you like, in place is really important because it means that you can tell that story to the second person and somebody's already agreed to support you or help you. And in a sense that either provides some sort of comfort or de-risks um, the second decision and so on the third decision, the fourth decision. So I've 
worked out where the head of physical training in the British Army was located, a place called Aldershot. It's about 30 miles south of London. And I called them up. And calling is, you know, quicker than traveling, um, you know, by orders of magnitude, plural. So, <laughs> so I called them up and I said, hello, can I speak to your head of physical training, please? And could you tell me who that is? And they said, that's Colonel Ted Martin, sir. And I said, terrific. Could you put me through to Colonel Ted Martin, please? And they said, yes, sir. So I was put through and Colonel Martin's adjutant, his, his assistant, picked up the phone and I said, oh, hello, can I speak to Ted, please? And that was a very specific ploy in that I thought this person might think I know Ted and I might have a greater chance of being put through because he doesn't know me at all and I'm nobody to him and he's head of physical training in the British Army. He's got quite a big job. <laughs> um, anyway, I was put through um, and you'll be pleased to hear that when Colonel Martin answered the phone, I addressed him as Colonel Martin. Um, this was appropriate to reply. <laughs> and of course you have you know, what, five seconds or 10 seconds, you know, perhaps within which period of time he's going to make a decision as to whether he's going to talk to you anymore or not. You know, and that buys you another 45 seconds if you get through that hurdle, and then it maybe buys you another couple of minutes. And so my five or 10 seconds to Colonel Martin was, Colonel Martin, my name's Rob, we've never spoken before, but I'm going to try and get a million people to swim to help stop seven jumbo jets full of under fives dying from malaria every day. Could I speak to you about that? Go on. And it gave me 45 seconds. It gave me, anyway, he said, look, I've never spoken to a civilian for 45 minutes on the phone, but 44 minutes, I remember the number, 44 minutes on the phone before, get your backside down to Aldershot, come and see me. And so I went to see Colonel Martin and I explained in a meeting with him what I was looking to do, which was to get a million people to swim. And we talked about his physical training instructors and I said, look, I suppose really my request, Colonel Martin, is, or, or Ted, we were, I think, Ted and Rob at that stage. I said, what, what I'm really looking for, Ted, is would you send emails to your 350 physical training instructors and ask them if they'll organize a swim? And if 50 of them do, and, and wives and husbands and girlfriends and boyfriends and you know the, the chefs on the base and the children and the teachers at the school, etc., if 100 people said, yes, they'll swim in any way they wanted to, then that's 5,000 people. Or if you've got 100 people to say yes and 50 people at each swim on average. And he said, why would I send an email? And that was the moment at which I have to say the world did slightly stand still for me because I thought, aha, this man is really quite busy and I've turned <laughs> up with my little charity idea <laughs> and he's just about to say, I really am you know, quite busy with lots of things you know, in my day job, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's not something that, you know, we can get involved in. Uh, instead, what he said was, why would I send an email to my 350 direct reports and ask them to do something? I'll just bloody tell them. Excuse the language. <laughs> in other words, you know, he, he, you know, he got it. And he just said, look, we can, we can help with this. What a terrific thing to do. And I then spoke to Aussie Masters Swimming uh, from the UK um and managed to get through to you know somebody who got it um and and it was the, it was instant i have to say i mean it it was it was not quite a minute on the phone with each but i mean many of these calls were not long um and people said look this is terrific we're in and strategically i waited until i had 12 organizations involved so in essence um 
indications, if I can put it that way, not so much promises or commitments, of 60,000 people involved. And then I called a very nice man called Simon Ryder, and he was president of Speedo. Because I felt that if I went to see Simon at that point and said, I've got 60,000 people lined up to swim, that will be the world's largest participatory swim ever. Could we get you involved and Speedo could get 5,000 people involved? Um, so I went to see him and he said, swimming, global, terrific course, no-brainer. I think he might have said, how much money do you want? And I said, don't want any money. Just want 5,000 people to swim like everybody else. And what I was aware of is that if we had Speedo agreeing to become involved, um, and I did have some comments to make about, you know, sort of the commercial side of this, that it, this wasn't about, you know, commercial stuff. It was about doing something, you know, humanitarian with lots of different groups involved and let's involve everybody, you know, as, as best we can. What I did, was I, what I was aware of is that given that Speedo, um, you know, are, you know, were then and arguably are now, I believe, um, you know, the dominant, you know, swimming brand. Um, and they certainly were the sponsors of, you know, a huge proportion of the world's Olympic gold medalist swimmers um, and the like, that that would be an interesting element to introduce because if we could have well-known swimmers standing up and saying, if I take part in World Swim Against Malaria and I swim, I count as one person. It doesn't matter how fast I swim. And if you swim, you count as one person as well. The, the sort of sentiment I was trying to surround World Swim with was that we're all equal. We're all in this together, helping you know fellow human beings. It's not about celebrity. It's not about, you know, I'm better than you. I'm faster than you. And the response from those swimmers, by the way, was absolutely terrific. I mean, they were brilliant. Um, you know, they really put themselves out. They, they wanted to help. They didn't want to be in it for profile. They just thought this is, a re this is the right thing to do. Um, so that's back in 2004. Um, during 2004, I was having these conversations and, and put together 20 groups um, during that period, who would agree to and follow up conversations, who agreed to take part, set up a charity with the help of you know, some other organizations, all pro bono, which is another, another side to this story, I guess. Um, and the World Swim was launched and took place in December 2005. So that, you know, that's a flavor of how it all started and where it came from initially, me not being very good with the remote control of the television. I have a couple of follow-ups to that. Um, how did you find the transition moving from a single identifiable person needed help to working on malaria, which is one of the biggest diseases uh, which, in the world, which impacts millions, hundreds of millions? Good question. I'm not, I'm not sure I've ever thought about that um, before. Um, I think the, the thing that's similar between the two is that we all knew what we were doing, the thing we were doing for, in the case of Terry, it was helping Terry. In the case of malaria, it was stopping people dying and falling sick. So whilst you're obviously correct to point out that it's an individual to many individuals, so an amorphous group, if you like. So I don't think there was, you know, there was never a moment when I thought about, oh, this is a change or a step up or that didn't occur to me. It was more... I suppose, focusing in the first case with Terry um, and trying to support her, it was 
a slightly random walk of let's get some swims involved and if we can push it along a bit and get more people involved that's better and then i really like the idea of some of the sort of slightly wild and wacky things we did with swim for terry um for example some students at two of the universities in the uk wanted to help and they said we'd like to do something really different because it can be part of a sort of fundraising activity here and if it's really different then you know we can generate more interest and so i decided it would be a really good idea to fly them out to an island in the middle of the atlantic um ascension island um i mean there's slightly more backstory but the interests of time um and so eight students said yeah we're up for that um so i said well look you know if i can make it work it's you know you'd be on a nine-hour flight to an island in the middle of nowhere we do have a, a swim for terry on ascension island and you could take part in it and then come back again um so you could say that you're going to swim the english channel in the middle of the atlantic to raise money for a child with 90 percent burns and and they became very excited about that um and so i called the base commander um the royal air force base commander in ascension island and said i've got some people that would really like to come and join your swim and i think i was aware at the time that this particular individual knew of the swim that was taking place i think in the only swimming pool that existed on this very small dot in the middle of the atlantic and um he liked the idea and said look um you know clearly we're the royal air force and so you know we're a part of her majesty's arms forces we have a job to do um and by the way i have no connection with the army or the air force although i'm because <laughs> i'm indicating i have far from it um, um and, but there's a there's a flight that that goes down from a airfield called bryce norton and you know what we concocted together is that he said it would be uh, there was some connection between some of the students and also the cadet forces i think i'd put that piece together as well um at the universities and so there was a you know there were some th elements we could draw together here um uh, it wasn't sort of totally totally random but there were some pieces we stitched together and so these students had to be at Bryce Norton at 2300 hours. And when the plane took off, they then flew for nine hours, um, were dropped off, um, spent time involved in swimming the English Channel in a swimming pool as part of a group. The aeroplane then, by the way, flew onto the Falkland Islands um, uh, off South America, um, turned around, flew back to uh, Ascension Island, picked them up, flew them back to London, so over or the UK. <laughs> and therefore, over a period of I don't know what the elapsed time was, 22 hours, these eight people had flown to the middle of the Atlantic, swam the English Channel, come back. <laughs> and, and there were a number of stories like that as part of Swim for Terry that were, in a sense, creating stories, creating experiences. Um, we didn't have any marketing. We didn't, you know, we didn't spend any money, money on marketing Swim for Terry. It wasn't about that. It was a very organic, you know, just us ordinary folks doing something. So I suppose the same sort of thing was taken forward with World Swim. It, you know, yes, we're now focusing on millions of people in terms of the, you know, those we're trying to support. But the thing that was retained was the ordinariness of what we were doing, yet the, you know, the sort of slightly wacky story part of what we were doing. Definitely what was not wacky was the fact that 100% of the money we raise will buy long-lasting insecticidal nets. They'll end up overheads and beds and we'll prove it. You know, so there was a very simple, you know, we swim, we save lives. There were a number of sort of taglines we used. Um, again, we didn't pay for any marketing. It was very helpful having Speedo and other swimming organizations involved. So Tier and Arena and Zogs and, and other people. So again, 
no commercial pitching here really but more just people with you know the chairman of speedo has a very big heart and was is a you know is a wonderful man and he said look we're behind this you know this is the right thing to do so i think we engaged a lot of people in just cooperating um had the right sort of sense around it so um you know that that's change from one person to you know an important problematic disease um never you know never really came up as a uh, something we had to think about. Um, and speaking of the uh, swims, how has your fundraising changed since the early days of World Swims to now where Against Malaria Foundation is now? imagine it's quite different, but there may be some threads that have maintained the whole way through. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Um, we don't focus on the swim now. We did a, a World Swim, as we called it, um, World Swim Against Malaria, WSM. Um, that took place in 2005 and then 2008 and 2010. There were requests to do it again, um, and so we did, and then we did it again. And it did require um, you know, quite a bit of focus of my time um, to sort of move things along, albeit with the swims, we didn't organize anything. You know, there were no, we had no overheads. And indeed, those early days of World Swim, and indeed for the first 10 years of the Against Malaria Foundations, um, as we subsequently became known, <coughs> um, organization, it, you know, we were just two people. So me and my colleague Andrew. And Andrew and I had worked together sort of previously. He was um, the head of technology of a business I ran. Um, so we found that a lot of people just wanted to give us money. Um, so I remember somebody writing to me and saying, I'm a poet and I can't swim. I, I actually cannot <laughs> swim. And so I, I can't oh, raise money for you that way, but I can, I, I think the line was, I can swim in words. Um, and is that any mm. good to you? And, you know, some lovely conversations like that with people who really wants to help. And World Swim Against Malaria, if you're obviously going to drop the swim bit, you're left with two fundamental words, Against Malaria, which really you know, tells you what it's all about. And so not only did the website, you know, change to againstmalaria.com, but we, in essence, um, invited people to fundraise in, what any, what, in, in whichever way they wished to, as long as it was safe and legal, set up a fundraising page on the Against Malaria website. Um, you know, have people I've set up a few of my own over the years. <laughs> well, we're very grateful, Luke, for that. Um, and... And, and direct, you know, funding so that from the, you know, again, sort of empathetically trying to put ourselves in the position of the fundraiser or the donor, you know, from a fundraiser's perspective, you know, it wants to be simple, easy. I don't have to collect any money. I'd like to know how much I've raised. I'd like to know where the money goes, um, which, you know, distributions my, my individual donation has funded would be really nice rather than into some big, you know, pot. So the transition became... Uh, it sort of it just evolved because people started giving us money. Um, we found that people who'd swum um, and had organized a swim or had just donated said, you know, we, we, my family give charity, you know, contributions each year and we'd like to give it to you guys. Are you still accepting money? And I think part of that was <clears throat> assisted by us gently and appropriately communicating with donors um, and, and providing updates and information and thank yous but never soliciting funds so we never wrote to people and said please can we have some more money there's a big hole please would you consider us i i felt very strongly about that 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 if people wanted to support what we were trying to do 
it was because they looked at what we were doing and the information we were providing and thought this is a good thing not because we were clever at marketing or had a you know a nice picture or an advert and i and that's perhaps a personality thing i i don't like the soliciting aspect of it um i also think that it on a very practical level it it's tough because you've either got to put money into it to advertise and market and get your message out um the whole wider sort of marketing soliciting type approach and that means that the percentage of people's a percentage potentially a significant percentage when you're small of people's funds are going on that and i didn't like the optic of that i thought that was not right um so there was a uh, a very particular approach of moving the organization or allowing the organization to evolve or this thing that was becoming against malaria to evolve where people could give us money in whatever way they wanted um we'll link every piece of money you give us to a specific net distribution because we can come up with some technology and database and code and you know clever systems that's where andrew comes in um very clever chap and we can share with donors every single donor what you've helped to achieve so if you've given us $10 nowadays as we know it's moved from $5 a net to $2 a net uh, so if you give us $10 we will buy five nets um in fact obviously it's 5.2 nets or you know but we'll echo out the integer number five nets and they'll protect you know 10 people or nine people and this is the location to which your nets will will go or be distributed in and um and here are the nets either in manufacture or or being shipped you know we can track and echo out all that information back to donors so we moved away from the swim being a focus of what we were doing to our focus is on funding as many nets as we can and protecting as many people as we can because that's you know that's the uh, the way we we move towards the impact we want to have which is reduce the number of deaths and reduces reduce the number of cases of malaria so it was a natural a natural transition and of course now you also have a lot of uh, large institutional funding as well and uh, other organizations uh, who uh, have recognized the quality of the work that's being done and, and the cost effectiveness as well. So we have two sorts of donors. I would categorize them in this way, um, and then we can perhaps come back to your institutional comment. We don't get any money from governments. Um, yeah. So it's it's sort of it's Sorry, new money. Sorry, philanthropic institution. <laughs> yes, I, I realize you meant that. Yes, I, I, that was a non sequitur. So we, we don't get any money from governments. Um, but uh, we have two sorts of donors. People like sort of you know you and me if i can put it that way who give you know 10 dollars and 30 euros and 20 swiss francs and you know 40 new zealand dollars etc um and that's our bedrock of support that's our lifeblood and often when it appears on graphs it appears in red because it's the sort of most important bit i would argue and there are many tens of thousands of donors each year now who give in that way and a lot of those donations are recurring which is you know really good to see um because it it typically indicates that somebody has thought about their charitable giving and we have a very high retention rate uh, of recurring donations um i think for a series of reasons um you know not least of which is donors can see 
where their money is, you know, how many nets have been funded with that money, as I just explained, and and where their nets are going, and they have their own personal page where they can, you know, track, you know, how many nets have I funded, how many people have I protected, and exactly where. And the second group of donors we have is what I refer to as the large donors. So they are people who give large donations. So in our world, it's typically north of a million dollars. Uh, we draw the line there, you know, I suppose artificially, but in 2011, we had our first donation of a million dollars from a very nice Scotsman called Brian. Um, and that was a total punch the air moment because at that stage, whilst we were looking at probably three or four, let's say four dollars a net, wasn't quite down to two at that point. You know, that's 250,000 nets to protect half a million people, you know, in one donation. And so that was really important. And uh, a number of organizations um, and individuals from 2011 onwards have subs subsequently given us multiple millions of dollar donations, including some of the institutions you've referred to, some of, some of the you know, EA organizations. Um, so particularly, you know, Give Well, The Life Can Save, Giving What We Can, um, you, know, the, you know, the three of the bigger ones there, um, and most influential. And their evaluation of AMF you know, prodding and poking at what we do, requesting the data, looking at the data, which I am all in favor of. The whole being held to account is incredibly important to me and all of us at AMF. And that led to, you know, some very good evaluations and some very positive evaluations of what we were doing. And, and that led to recommendations to give us money um, and money being directed to us. But I would argue that those large donations of millions of dollars only come to us because we have built an organization over in the first seven years of AMF was one to two million dollars a year. You know, we were sort of bumbling along, um, you know, with or without swims, um, with the odd big, biggish donation. But, you know, sleeves rolled up working hard to just make sure the operational elements of the nets that were just being distributed were being distributed totally accountably you know and we could we could account for them and we could feed that information back to donors simply report back either in the occasional email or something more public on a website and then after seven years we saw our revenues grow you know through the sort of low integers up to sort of 15 million dollars and then they jumped up to the tens of millions of dollars in the last couple of years we've been in the hundreds or the hundred we've been above a hundred million so we've you know it's been a you know, a slow build, if you like, in many ways, over 15 or so years, um, where we've wanted to explicitly take people to the best of our ability to take support with us. And, you know, one of the things I really hope we will uh, be able to achieve, that we will, you know, appear in people's giving priorities, continue to be high, is that fixing malaria isn't a sort of one-year deal. You know, it's a it's going to take another 10 years of hard effort with well-directed funds. Now that we're starting to increase the level of, of funding, you know, there's still a huge gap in funding, I'm afraid, and we have to make nasty decisions on a regular basis and turn people down. We just don't have the money to fund your millions of nets. We just don't. And that means that twice that number of people will be unprotected when they sleep at night because nobody else has got any more money. So we hope that our gentle-ish approach to communicating with people, but the the very focused way we report back and what we report back on will continue to deliver sort of 
high levels of confidence in what we do um, such that people feel able and willing and you know keen to support what we do so you know there's a there's a there's a, a journey we've been on and we're still on to take support with us Amazing. Um, we're going to change gears a bit and talk uh, some of the nuts and bolts of malaria and vet nets and AMF uh, operationally. Um, I'd love to. I'd love if you could talk about how you do the monitoring and evaluation, how you know if people are using uh, bed nets properly. Household level data is the answer to all of the questions you've just asked. Um, if we're distributing millions of nets at a time, the only way you know that they have got to the right people in the right quantities is if you have household level data. So let me paint, in a sense, the opposite picture that can occur and arguably did occur and sometimes does still occur, although not in the distributions that we're involved in. If you and I, Luke, were parachuted in to a health center that dealt with 100 villages, and so there might be, uh, let's say, 20,000 people in, in that catchment area um, across 4,000 households, something like that. We could send out, uh, or data collectors, um, let's call them that, um, so perhaps a portion of the staff from the health center could be sent out to all of the villages in turn to visit each household understand how many people were in each household and therefore how many nets individually each household needed to achieve universal coverage. And roughly, as I mentioned earlier, it's two people per net. So if there are eight people in a household, they'll probably need four nets or maybe five because it might be appropriate that grandma has a net on her own and, you know, a teenage girl has a, a net on her own and the two, you know, younger brothers have a net on their own, etc. So, but let's say it's two people per net. You collect that data, and perhaps you collect that data on paper. And you've therefore got many pieces of paper that come back to the health center. And if you were to tot up all the totals across the pages and across the whole paper set, you might work out that you need uh, 8,000 nets or 10,000 nets across, across that particular catchment area. Now, what used to happen, and certainly it was given the space to happen, that when you reported up the chain how many nets were needed by that health centre, if the health centre reported 12,000 or 13,000 or 15,000, the only way you could ever know, because we're not talking about very accurate census information existing, is if you sent somebody to that health center and had somebody tot up all the rows on each page and all the totals on each page, in other words, unfortunately, there was a, a gap created. And I'm not wishing to suggest that, you know, a high proportion of people would do this. In fact, it's far, it's the opposite. But you created a, a space there for, let's call it inflation to occur. Now, that's not only incredibly inefficient funding-wise, because you might be providing... 5,000 additional nets to a location where you don't need them to go. Um, and those nets, by the way, and there are examples, I'm afraid, of this happening, those 5,000 nets are then squirreled away and released into pharmacies or onto the black market and people make money from them. Um, and 
rather than thinking, oh, well, at least the nets end up over heads and beds at a certain point, don't they? We're operating against a, a, you know, a, a landscape here of not enough nets to go around. So it means that those 5,000 nets that should have gone somewhere else to protect 10,000 people are being held back and uh, sort of being dripped onto the market over time. What you have got straight away is 10,000 people who are not covered, and that's very bad. So, so our approach fundamentally um, with all of our partners, and we work with partners to do this, is that we gather household-level data. These days, it's not gathered on paper. It's gathered electronically in all of our distributions using smartphones um, that have GPS location um, data collected at the same time, at the moment of collecting the household-level data. And so you can already see that what we're moving to is a circumstance where we've got um, electronic data, so you can you can interrogate that in a very different way. Well, you can interrogate it in a way you can't interrogate data on paper. So that's a that's a you know shift in the game straight away. Um, and then we have a number of mechanisms that we use to, and and they're driven and anchored solely in sort of common sense, really, as to how do we go about checking that data. So one of the things we do, because we don't tend to do trust, because we don't think trust is a good way of going about the programs we run, not through any lack of respect for the people we work with, but we just don't do trust, we do data, is we say to the hundred data collectors we have in a room, um, or the people we work with who will put them through um, an orientation and training program, um, showing them the household registration form, the smartphone that you know is used to gather the data, and you know there's a you know half day training that's required um, uh, to orient people. We will say, in effect, to those 100 data collectors gathered in a room, thank you for the work you're about to do in going to thousands of households um, because it's really important that we gather accurate data so we get the right number of nets to each individual household so every sleeping space is, is covered. These five other people in the room are also data collectors, and they are going to go to 5% of the households that each of you visit in the day or days after you've collected your data and they will have no knowledge of the data you collected and they will go to randomly selected households. In other words, we're going to collect duplicate data for 5% of the households. In other words, the message that we are communicating to the data collectors is please be accurate with your work because we will be checking up on it. Not because we don't trust you, because we don't do the trust thing we're just going to focus on collecting the data and making sure that um, you know the data is accurate. And by doing that 5% revisit work, as we call it, which is, if we think economically, is adding 5% to the cost of collecting data at 100% of the households. So it's a relatively small additional amount of money. And the collecting the data from the households is only one part of the entire universal coverage campaign costing, which includes nets, shipping, household registration, distribution, customs, you know, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, it's a very small additional amount of money that's very focused on ensuring incredibly high data quality, which means that then we can have a much higher level of confidence that the nets are getting to the right people in very, very high proportions, and we're maximizing the impact we have. So that 5% revisit is the first way and is typical of the ways we think about trying to make sure that the work we do 
is the work we want to have done. Other things we do um, are something called IVR, which is uh, independent village uh, re-registration. So we will select at, uh, randomly a material number of villages, so it might be 40, 50, 100, and we will pay, working with completely independent organizations, um, we will pay for that organization to go and register every single household completely in those villages so that we can then have another way of triangulating in on accuracy, if you like, um, of the data that the national health system is collecting because it's the health system in a country that's activated to go to all of these households and collect the data. It has to be that because you're looking at thousands and in some cases several tens of thousands of people in a country that are activated across you know, a period of weeks or months to go and collect the household level data. And remember, you've got to do that because otherwise you'd have to give, I guess, two, two nets per household. And that's overgiving for a household that's only got two people and woefully undergiving for a household that's got nine people um, or even you know six people. So independent village re-registration gives us data points. We don't do it in all distributions and COVID has affected it to a degree. Um, but it allows us another angle on checking on accountability. The, the, some of the other things we do that are that are more observational, but are equally or have their place and are important, is that we do planning monitoring. So if we're funding millions of nets and putting millions, if not tens of millions of dollars worth of donors' money into funding nets into a country, then we're in a sense supporting and backing a major logistics program, a major project in a country. And one of the fundamental keys to success in that country is the leadership of the program and the key people within the National Malaria Control Program who are managing that very large project. So what we like to do is to get involved, is to make commitments a number of years ahead, because this is, again, a major logistical program with nets taking many, many months to be manufactured, shipped, and then transported in country, we pay for an independent organization to sit in meetings in country. Not because we want to spy or check up on you, because this is a team effort. It's not us and them. Um, you know, It's the metaphorical, we're all sitting around the same circular table. We, however, wish to have a very good understanding of the planning process. You know, what are the schedules, the resources, the personnel, you know, because it's that planning that is at the heart of delivering, you know, a really good outcome. I mean, a really good painting a room and, and making it terrific is 95% preparation and 5% wielding a paintbrush. So focusing on on the preparation is really important. And if we come up with things that we have concerns about or we think are, you know, outright problems, it doesn't happen often, but, you know, we're often, we have questions. We're raising those questions and, and observations or concerns in the spirit of we're all on the same side. Um, and if we can raise them early, perhaps because we are bringing to bear experience we have in other countries with deployment of handheld devices for gathering electronic, you know, data electronically at households, you know, we're, we're then a positive contributor to the t team effort. So we're not trying to sit there and catch people out. In the same way, we have independent organizations that we pay for um, 
you know, we go through a tendering process that's very detailed and we are very careful in our selection of partners in country um, and we look at their leadership and their experience and their attitude, etc. And we will then pay tens of thousands of dollars for um, people to monitor the registration. Again, sampling, because you can't go to every single you know village being registered, obviously. Um, but we have mechanisms for doing that so we can do a sensible job of of making sure that things are going right um, and putting ourselves and our, our, our partners in a position where we can pick up if things are going wrong. So here we're getting into, if you like, the sort of, you know, the nitty gritty of the operations um, because that's where we as an organization are going to underachieve. We don't necessarily underachieve on fundraising because, you know, hey, we can only, we can only spend the money we've got. I can't make, put legal agreements in place so I don't have the money. The more money we have, the more of the gap we can fill, and boy, have we got a big funding gap. But where we would, where we would, you know, mess up is if nets were stolen or they got to the, you know, people in the wrong quantities, and we weren't covering people. And so there's a an exceptional level of effort and focus that goes into thinking about how we monitor all of the operational procedures to help improve things. Um, you know, monitoring waybill movements and shipping movements, and you know there are myriad other ways we do it. But that gives you a flavour of the sort of we're 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 very much involved in the operations. We don't just agree to fund nets and then say good luck, step aside. You know, we have a almost forty-page legal agreement with a Ministry of Health, um, three quarters of which has pages that are exceptionally detailed operationally in terms of clauses put together. I should add in collaboration and cooperation with the National Malaria Control Program and the Ministry of Health. It's not us turning up and saying, here's our document, you know, sort of, you know, without any thought, this is it. I mean, there's a lot of thought and experience that goes behind it. Um, but we do have some accountability requirements that we have to have agreed to. Otherwise, it's problematic for us to fund nets because then we can't be sure, you know, less attractive things are going to happen to the nets that we fund. So, you know, there's a very specific process there that's very detailed. I'd be really interested if you could talk about how bed nets differ from some of the other malaria interventions, such as chemo prevention, the upcoming gene drives that are on the horizon, and the new vaccine on the horizon, and kind of where you see the future of this. The solution to malaria I often think of as a, as a jigsaw puzzle with relatively few pieces in it. Um, Long-lasting insecticidal nets are a big piece. Um, artemisinin combination therapy is another big piece um, ACTs as they're known is the, is the drug that you can take which over a period of three or four days you know, can, can purge the malaria parasite from your system rapid diagnostic testing kits are another really important part if you present at a health centre with a fever and other symptoms of malaria it may be malaria but it may not be and in fact typically it's 50-50 so it's worth testing somebody through a rapid diagnostic testing kit to indicate whether you do or do not have malaria so that we give ACTs out to the right people and don't over or too quickly exhaust the supply, you know, simply providing ACTs to people who don't need them. SMC, uh, seasonal malaria chemophylaxis, I think, um, is uh, a very important part of malaria control. It's one of those uh, pieces that is more a more recent entrance, if you like, um, and that focuses on a on the under fives typically and involves a, a sort of an, an annual dosing if you like if i can if i can call it that um and 
That is very important in reducing malaria cases and malaria deaths, and it targets one of the very uh, at-risk groups, the under fives. The other at-risk group group is um, pregnant women, um, and they are the most vulnerable groups because the under fives have a developing immune system, so they're less able, um, relatively speaking, to uh, withstand malaria, and pregnant women um, find that their immune system is somewhat compromised when they're with child. So th those are the two very at-risk groups. Um, those are our current tools, if you like. Um, there are other very important elements of malaria control, removing areas of stagnant water where possible because that's where uh, malaria-carrying mosquitoes breed. So old tires. Um, if you've ever tried to get the last bit of water out of a tire, good luck with that without a towel um, or a very warm day. Um, and so, you know, water can collect in, in relatively small places, you know, teeny-weeny puddles, and mosquitoes can breed. So, you know, there's an element of, of sort of sanitation uh, that is very important that uh, supports malaria control, back to those sort of basics, if you like. Um, larviciding is another um, thing you can do where you, you, know, you, you effectively spray on the top of water surfaces and, and in fact, you can put you know, fish in, in water bodies that eat the eggs of um, uh, the, the breeding mosquitoes. But they're, 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 I suppose they're smaller in terms of their impact, very much so. So we're looking at um, you know, nets and SMC and drugs and uh, ACTs and rapid diagnostic testing kits and, and arguably things like health system strengthening so that you can diagnose malaria quickly um, so that that person that is infected that could be considered uh, to be an infected blood pool, if you like, you, you want to remove that infected blood pool because then an, a non-malaria-carrying mosquito that bites somebody it's annoying, but because that person doesn't have, it's an itch, if you like, afterwards, it doesn't, it's not biting an infected person, and therefore it's not going to pick up the malaria parasite, there's no transmission involved. Um, and so there's a, a great bonus in, 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 in reducing the infected blood pool, because that's part of making um, malaria go away. So health system strengthening, HSS, as we often refer to it, you know, that receiving funding is, is very important too. And then on the horizon, because we don't have a, a silver bullet right now, um, is the potential of a malaria vaccine, a highly effective malaria vaccine, and the potential for gene drive technology to give us a, a silver bullet. And the way I often explain where we are with both of those things is that we have a malaria vaccine, a recently um, approved malaria vaccine, RTS, S, um, is its uh, um, designation, I think more, re more frequently known colloquially as Mercurix. And it's been described to me by people who know much more about this than I do, um, that it is a, a tool in the toolbox. It's helpful. But it's not a bullet, let alone a silver bullet, if I can use that rather unfortunate analogy of it's not the, sort of the, it's not the answer, it's not a panacea where it can be deployed and we can make rapid progress and you know, eradicate malaria in swathes. Um, and part of the reason for it being a contributor, a tool in the toolbox, is perhaps best to understand if we think of another well-known vaccine, and that is for polio. And with polio, you had a vaccine that was effective on 100% of the population, it was 100% effective. 
it could be given um it only needed to be administered once and it had no cold chain logistics it had no tricky logistics you could literally put a, a vaccine drop on a on a sugar lump or indeed inject it it was very uh, easy logistically to to get it to the people who needed it now you compare that with the current malaria vaccine we have in the toolbox um it's only targeted at under fives um so it's only a proportion of those people that are affected albeit that's an important group it's only i believe 30 to 35% effective not 100% so it's better than nothing obviously but it's not at the i think the who frequently say that they look at 70 to 75% efficacy and effectiveness um uh for vaccines they they support so it's it's under that threshold um it does require multiple injections one week apart and then i think a booster injection after a, a week and i believe there are um you know there are some quite challenging logistic elements involved in its deployment so the comparison between polio and and the current malaria vaccine is that you know it's not where we want it to be i would add to that that the scientists who've come up with it have been uh, amazingly brilliant because this is the first time we've found a vaccine for a parasite remember that you yeah. know covid which we're so familiar with is a virus whereas malaria is a parasite and, and never in the history of you know man have we found a vaccine for a parasite so that is a that's a major development and let's hope in terms of its practical application in terms of the practical application of a malaria vaccine that you know other scientists or the same scientists will build on the work that you know the brilliant people have done so far and the success they've had so far and at some point in the future we will come up with something that is you know is that silver bullet is that hey we can vaccinate everybody now and uh, and really you know nets a totally second grade and you know not not sort of required anymore at a certain point in time unfortunately um what i'm being told by the scientists who work on uh malaria vaccines is that we're you know at least 10 years away from from that you know if not longer um i'm very happy to stand corrected i would be delighted to be corrected and that number to be lowered um and so there's progress but we're not there yet and in terms of you know the proportions of funding that are going to go into malaria control it's it's not uh, i don't think it's going to change dramatically and and nets and some of these other solutions we've spoke spoken about or contributors are going to remain the mainstays of what we do and then the other area where we have um promise of 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 a of a game changer is in gene drive technology um and for those who uh, are unfamiliar with it gene drive technology refers to driving a change in the gene through um you know very clever chemistry and the way you know this layman you know understands it is that in the past if you wanted to alter you know base pairs or groups of base pairs in in a gene sequence um it was akin to throwing a you know rather small grenade um at 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 the sequence and and there would be some collateral damage and and lots of testing had to go on to see what that collateral damage might be and with the advent of two particular technologies um something called crispr and something called cas9 metaphorically speaking we were able to go in with a pair of scissors and snip out a base pair and replace it um in a sense by unzipping the gene and then zipping it back up again it's incredibly clever um you know some research that was done a number of decades ago but 
you know, in recent in, in recent years, was picked up and extended. And so we have we have um, an opportunity there of adjusting the gene. And there are many ways that that could be done. Um, for example, potentially you could adjust the gene in some mosquitoes such that they no longer um, are able to transmit malaria. Um, it's worth pointing out that I think there are something like 4,000 species of, mo of mosquito, and we're not worried about 3,960 of them because they do not transmit malaria. They're not vectors for malaria. 40 of them are, and of those 40, five are particularly nasty. And so if we could adjust one of those species of mosquito that's in the very bad category, um, whilst there will no doubt be a debate about you know, any sort of you know, uh, gene modification work on a, on a species, um, I don't think it would take me very long, unless there's something I'm about to find out that would change my mind, that removing effectively or adjusting one uh, of... 4,000 species of mosquito, um, I would be putting both hands in the air pretty quickly, uh, given the impact it potentially could have on malaria. Um, I believe that that sort of work is seven to ten year, years away from, from the sort of next major step forward of coming up with something that's a sort of practical solution. And there are various, um, various you know, projects, research projects going on around this area at the moment, and we, you know, those of us in the malaria um, community, if you like, you know, fingers crossed, and we fervently hope that you know there will be you know major progress forward in the coming years. And I like to think of it in, uh, or it was described to me in one way that I thought was was quite good um, when when I asked, you know, where are we when it comes to finding a, a gene drive solution that could really impact malaria? And I was told, well, the solution, the gene drive solution to malaria is a small hut. It can be considered to be a small hut that's two meters by two meters and is camouflaged and sits beneath the Amazon rainforest somewhere in the Amazon. And up until relatively recently, or arguably up until Cas9 and CRISPR, we didn't know where that hut was and we had no way of finding it other than hoping we might stumble across it or systematically overflying, you know, with binoculars and looking at the Amazon rainforest. With the advent of CRISPR and Cas9, we have stumbled across or we are now on the road that leads to that shack. We just don't know whether it's 100 kilometers down the road or 1,000 kilometers down the road, but we're on the road. In other words, it's now a matter of time. It's when, not if. And so that's a really important step forward. And I like that, you know, we're now on the hunt for that hut in, uh, or that shack in the Amazon rainforest that is the gene drive solution to malaria. Maybe a vaccine will appear first. Um, isn't it good to have two different technologies, scientific endeavors, seeing if we can materially help at some point in time, you know, remove malaria? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> very exciting. <laughs> um, so we've just, you know, had that story of the path to, you know, near eradication, if not eradication. Um, suppose that, uh, malaria is effectively eradicated sometime, hopefully in the near future. Um, what do you see yourself doing next? Hmm. Uh, well, I mean, lots to get on with. I mean, you know, I often, I often give a talk called plan B, and plan B for AMF is close it down. Um, and that would be a fabulous day because, 
you know, any of us working against malaria, we'd, we'd all love to be out of a job in that sense because, you know, thousands of people don't die. Millions, well, you know, hundreds of thousands of people don't die and millions don't fall sick. Um, uh, I've, I've been asked to get involved in a number of other, you know, areas of, you know, disease and charity activity. And uh, a number of things interest me. Probably wouldn't be prudent to go into them here. It takes too long. Or I get too enthusiastic about things I'd like to be doing. Um, but I think there are, you know, as you, as you know, Luke, there are plenty of areas that need work. And, and, um, and, and I would hope that some of the things we've learned over the years at AMF could be brought to bear in another area. So I don't think we'll be short of options. Um, and and you personally, uh, anything? Uh, if you, if you do sh if you do uh, succeed and everything goes well, and you actually shut down malaria uh, AMF, you should take a little holiday or something for a bit before you start the next thing. <laughs> yeah, probably. I think my wife would agree with that. But uh, <laughs> my children. But um, yeah, I, I I suppose I'm I'm really. I'm really keen to, I feel as I've had a very privileged existence in so many ways, you mm. know, in my, you know, upbringing and education and, you know, people I've worked with and so on. And I guess I do have a pretty strong passion to try and, you know, help and make something happen and improve things. Um, so I, I don't ever, I don't ever see sort of not doing something or wanting to help. Um, and what's important in any project is having a really good team of people, um, smart people. Uh, and that is not only, you know, those are my colleagues at AMF. I have a, you know, uh, you know, a very good sort of family of people at, at, at AMF who, you know, are really not only very smart people, but they're passionate about what they do. And I suppose that's a, a key element of any endeavor you get involved in. It's, you know, nobody ever does anything alone. Um, and of course it extends beyond the AMF, team because we work with you know partners in country and so on so that's always a a fun part of the journey because you're or the work you do because you come across really interesting people and it's been given the model at amf has been one of you know we don't pay for anything in the sense that our central costs at amf are very low um you know broadly it's just the salaries of seven people um you know, we don't we don't have any bills for accounting and banking and legal and audit and you know um, well we do have an audit fee actually at the moment um, which we, we'd like to see go away but uh, that's recently appeared um, but uh, you know translation and web hosting and so on so our central costs are really low um, and that means or it is because I have had conversations with hundreds and hundreds of people and said. You know, who in your industry would agree to help us, but we don't really want to pay you because you don't need two dollars more than a couple of children in Africa to be a bed net. And I've been privileged to have so many conversations with so many brilliant people who've said, Yep, we'll help. And mm. and nobody's ever stepped away in sixteen years. They've uh, you know, we've managed it in a particular way. So I think again, some of those lessons, you know, perhaps I would take forward into the next thing I do and say it's a model that works. Um, you know, with the right bits in place, and hopefully, you know, we could make a. You know, we, I say we because you know, I wouldn't. What I do next, I wouldn't do on my own. Um, uh, you know, we can make a difference. You know, in some other area. Um, and I've got a few ideas, but I'll keep those to myself just for the moment because we're. You know, there's a lot of work we have to do on malaria right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before closing, is there anything else you'd like to say to our community? 
Well, a big thank you. Um, I mean, AMF is a, you know, has been supported in the most fabulous way by the EA community, you know, and the wider public. But when the EA community, um, if I can, you know, call it that, appeared, you know, some ten or so years ago, we started seeing, you know, a terrific level of sustained support, and that support has grown. So, AMF is at the size it is at now. Um, in no small part because of the EA community and people, many people giving, you know, multiples of $2, but, you know, that's the primary number because every $2 buys a net and protects two people and every $2 matters because every net matters because we've got a funding gap. Um, so I've often said that AMF is a, is a, is a, is a, is a child of the, EA community, if you like. Uh, I have been corrected to say that, well, we were born before the <laughs> EA community came about. The analogy is not perfect. But I, I hope you get the sentiment that we're, you know, we're hugely grateful for, you know, all aspects of, you know, those individuals who work in organizations who assess um, the many charities now that do, um, you know, very good work and, you know, are deemed worthy of support and recommendations and so on. You know, there's a lot of work people do to, understand what we do when we provide data and people analyze it and question it and um indeed we've had you know comments and critiques and and thoughts from people in the ea community uh, that has helped us get better because people said why don't you do it this way and we thought hey that's a good idea we didn't think about that um so we certainly don't sit here thinking you know we've got all the answers and we know what to do we're constantly you know learning improving tweaking getting better and in a, and, a, and a community helps us to do that and many people within the ea community volunteer their time and work with us um, and are part of helping that happen well that's a lovely note to finish on i want to say thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure i'm such a big fan of the work that amf does you have been a big part of my story and my journey and i am so thrilled to have had the chance to t talk to you today so thank you thank you look my pleasure